Genesis 39 tonight as we look at our kind of our third scene of the life of Joseph. We skipped, of course, Genesis 38, which is interesting reading. I would encourage you to read that for sure. Um, little, little segue or little, little detour into the life of Judah and his sin. Perhaps another time we could uh, unpack that a little bit, but for our purposes in the life of Joseph, we're going to go to chapter 39. In this scene, of course, Joseph's life, it, it experiences, he experiences the heights of favor of God and, and the depths of despair all in one chapter here. And there's only really one fact, one truth that ties everything together in his life and makes everything make sense, and it is this, the presence of God, the presence and the blessing of God. Uh, this passage is, is a case study on how to resist temptation when it has costs. Um, it actually would have been easy for Joseph to take the easy route, to do what was easy and what was convenient in this chapter, but he doesn't. He, he resists temptation even when it costs him something. And then further, it, this chapter calls us to remember that our circumstances, the, the, the trials and the situations that we find ourselves in, those things are not the final word in terms of God's blessing. In other words, it's tempting to believe that if you're going through a tough situation, it's because you've done something bad. It's also tempting to believe that if your life is generally well and your possessions and your finances are generally well taken care of, that must mean that God is smiling on you and He's happy with you and He's just rewarding you. Now, of course God does reward us, but we should be careful about looking at our situation in life and reading that as all of the time, 100%, a commentary on whether God is happy or mad with us. It's not exactly how this thing works. So, let's read. Why don't we just go ahead and read the entire chapter together, and then we'll come back and look at verses 1 through 6. Genesis 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh... The captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. They had bought him from the Ishmaelites, I'm sorry, who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So... Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. 
And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. I tell you what, why don't I just call an audible here and change up what I just said. Instead of us reading the whole chapter together and then coming back, we'll just, we'll just go section at a time. It's verses 1 through 6. So here's what is occurring. Out of this entire nation, Joseph is recognized for his unique value. In other words, Potiphar recognizes that there's something different about Joseph. This value is only present, though. It's only recognizable to Potiphar. The only reason that it occurs is because of the hand of God. The hand of God is on Joseph. And it says this, verse 2, almost out of the blue, the Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man. In other words, so Joseph's success, glory for that is given to God. Credit for that is given to God. His life is only explainable by God's presence and movement in his life. It says the Lord was with Joseph. He became a successful man. This, after all, it sets the stage for the rest of Joseph's life. His rise and fall at every moment. Every moment makes sense only because of God's presence and God's movement. Here, Joseph is exalted to a very comfortable and a powerful position because the Lord was with him. But, but, the story doesn't just stop there. God isn't simply blessing Joseph. He is doing that. But that's not all he's doing. Remember what we said in in weeks past that the point in God's play, whenever God tells a story of a, purpose, of a person's life, the point of the play is not the characters. The point of the play is not to glorify the actors. The point of the play is to glorify the playwright. The one who is behind the scenes, directing the play, causing things to, to rise and fall to bring himself glory. Look at what it says in verse 5. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. In other words, the nations are receiving a benefit from having a person that God has his hand on inside their house. What does this sound like? We should be hearing echoes of like Genesis Chapter 12. Listen to what it says in Genesis 12. And I will make you a great nation, God says to Abraham. I will make you of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. Why? So that you will be a blessing. Okay? I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families, or perhaps your translation of the Bible says nations, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The reason that God blessed and chose Abraham's family was not just for Abraham and his family. It was so that others might come to know who God is. And so we see a small little form of that happening here in Genesis chapter 39. Simply by Joseph's coming into the Egyptian's house. Simply by Joseph coming into 
Pharaoh's house or Potiphar's house, right, and serving Potiphar, Potiphar gets a blessing from it. So even in a small form, God is already partially fulfilling His promise to bless not only God's people, but to bless the nations. And of course, we know that today, the way that God desires to bless the nations is by God's people sharing the gospel, the Great Commission. But there's a little more. Genesis 22. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said to him, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. Of course, he's speaking um, Abraham and Isaac just after the the Abraham and Isaac event um, where Abraham obeyed God and was ready to sacrifice his son on top of the mountain. I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And your offspring shall... And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived in Beersheba. So God is partially fulfilling his promise already through Joseph. He's saying he's he's blessing the nations through his people. But there's more. There's more. Look at verses 7 through 12 as Joseph experiences temptation. It almost reminds us of Eden again. Of course, if you remember from this morning, that little poem from Robert Frost, even Eden sank to grief. Verses 7 through 12. Now, well, of course, helps if you read the last part of verse 6. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in his house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, this ongoing temptation, ongoing uh, issue, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and uh, none of the men of the house was, was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. So there are all kinds of applications here that we could draw. We want to be as God's people, people who don't even put ourselves in a situation where we could be tempted. Where we could be tempted by this. And so this is what Joseph does. The moment he he wants to flee temptation so badly that he leaves his coat behind. Right? He doesn't... uh, make any bones about his desire to to flee far from temptation. Potiphar's wife tempts Joseph sexually. He replies with incredulity as if to say, how could I? How could I? The, The master of the house has entrusted everything to my hand. How could I dishonor him in this way? Joseph seems to understand why 
sexual sin is so serious. Of course, you know, folks say, um, you know, all sin, all sin is sin. That's true, but different kinds of sin have different kinds of temptation. Or, I'm sorry, different kinds of sin have different kinds of consequences. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20 says this, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and also will raise us up by His power. Do you not know that our bodies are members of Christ? In other words, when we become united with Christ, there's there's some kind of strange spiritual reality that takes place when we are in Christ. Jesus, I mean, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside of us. We become, as Paul says, members of Christ, parts of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her, one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You see, in the, in the face of temptation, the temptation to gratify himself... Joseph replies by saying, I have a master, and he is not me. I am not my own, he says. He says this to Potiphar's wife. He says, I'm a man under authority. How could I dishonor my master? In the same way, this is a picture of how we flee sexual immorality. By saying, I am not my own. This body is just on loan. I don't get to just do with it what I would like. I have a master. I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. So what we do with our bodies matters. There's a spiritual connection with our bodies. And I've put a little note in here against Gnosticism. You see, in the, in the New Testament, in the time of Jesus, there was a movement or a group called the Gnostics. And they had a very kind of dualistic understanding of life. They said, you've got your body and then you've got your soul. You've got your body over here and your spirit, and what you do with one doesn't matter to the other. Well, Jesus says that's not how it works. God says that's not how it works. What we do with our bodies matter. We are embodied souls. God has given us bodies, and we are to honor Him with them. Further, what we see going on here in Genesis chapter 39 is a replay or a recapitulation. I used that word last week. A recapitulation of Eden. Isn't it interesting? Don't you see the parallels going on here? you got a man like Joseph. Seems to be a righteous man. Seems to be God-fearing. Kind of reminds you a little bit of Adam. He's put in this really grand place where all of his needs are taken care of. There's just one thing that's off limits to him. And it's Potiphar's wife. Sounds a lot like Eden, right? You get this, all of his needs are taken care of in the Garden of Eden. He can have whatever he wants. 
He has dominion, right? God said, work the ground, have dominion over the sea. Joseph has dominion. Everything in Potiphar's charge has been given to Joseph except one thing. And he says it here. He says it in uh, verse 9. He is not greater in this house than am I, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. In other words... The, the, the echoes are, seem to be very clear. Genesis chapter 2. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So Joseph seems to be like an Adam figure. Remember we used the term type last week? He's kind of a shadow. Seems to be an Adam type or an Adam figure. He also seems to be a Christ figure. Kind of a shadow of Christ. He, where Adam failed in the Garden of Eden, Joseph succeeded. Joseph obeyed God when he was tempted, where Adam failed when Adam was tempted. So Joseph shows that one day there's going to be one who at every turn obeys. At every turn he does what Adam should have done but failed. And so Joseph is like a little small picture of what's going to be true when Jesus comes. Um, both Adam faced tempted. Uh, both uh, let's see. Adam faced temptation and failed. Christ, though, faced temptation and succeeded. Both Joseph and Christ were punished for their disobedience to the Father. In other words, Joseph obeys God and gets punished for it. Jesus obeys God perfectly at every turn and is killed out of his obedience. We see a man who understands that sin is ultimately against God. Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God, he says. He doesn't say, how can I do this just against my master? He says, how can I do this against God? All sin is against God ultimately. So, the reality is this. If this life is all that there is then do whatever you can get away with. But, but, uh, well, I'm sorry. Do whatever you like with your body. You can speak evil because it feels good. Don't humble yourself. Don't ask for or give forgiveness. If this life is all that there is, then just do whatever you can get away with. But if God is real, and if He is who He says He is, then live now as if you will need to answer later for how you walked on earth. If God is is real, and if He is who He says He is, don't act like an atheist. Don't act like you don't believe that you're going to have to answer one day for what you've done in the body. The Christian life is an exercise of, of acting out of the belief that God is real and is near. Lastly, I have this point from verses 13 through 23. Joseph perseveres by God's presence. Look at verse 13. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand, that's an odd way to phrase it, as soon as she saw that she's holding his garment, like it must have happened that quick, she had to come to her senses, I don't know. As soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of the household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. She's editorializing here. 
Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home, and she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought in among us, he came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison. The place where the king's prisoners were confined, he was, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph. See that little phrase? Seems to be bookend at the beginning of the chapter and at the end of the chapter. Why did Joseph rise to such great heights? Because the Lord was with him. How can Joseph endure in prison? Because the Lord was with him. And he showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it to succeed. So what made Joseph's false accusations and imprisonment bearable? The Lord was with him. So, suffering, even being falsely accused, isn't a sign of God's disfavor. It isn't a sign of God's absence. After all, Christ himself was falsely accused. Indeed, like Joseph... Jesus too, as I just repeated that, was Jesus too was falsely accused. What sustained Joseph and gave him success even in prison? Verse 23, because the Lord was with him. Friends, this is enough for us to, to rest in tonight. That the Lord is with you. His one promise to us is not that life will always be good is not that our life will always be filled with suffering, but that whether we feel exalted or whether we feel lowly, as we mentioned this morning, the Lord is near to those who are His. When He gave us the Great Commission, right before He ascended to leave, right before He left to go be seated at the right hand of the Father, He said, and I will be with you to the end of the age. He confirmed it by sending His Holy Spirit to live inside of everyone who believes and confesses Jesus. Friends, I don't know what you're going through tonight. I don't know if you are exalted or lowly. I don't know if you are going through a time of need or a time of abundance. If you're going through a time of great contentment or a time of, of, of disappointment, loneliness. The Lord is near to you. He has promised that. He will be near to those who are His. Let's pray to Him and worship Him because of His nearness. Lord, when all around us seems to give way, we have this one confidence. And that is that You are Emmanuel. You are God with us. You were a God in the Old Testament who took pains to be near your people. You, you drew near to them 
in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. You drew near to them by giving them the tabernacle. You drew near to them by giving them the temple. You drew near to them by speaking to them through the prophets, through the, um, through, through the judges even. And then, and then in the New Testament, you sent your very son Jesus to be near to your people, dirty sinners like us. And now that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, you have again drawn near to us by sending your Holy Spirit to live inside of us. And you will one day draw even nearer by returning and bringing us home to you so that we can be in your presence again with unveiled face. Thank you, God, that you are a God who above all draws near to sinners. I pray that that truth would give us comfort wherever we are, whatever we're going through, that we know that you are here. Lord, instill this truth in our hearts. Get it down into our bloodstream. Get it down into the fiber of our being so that we can face our days boldly and confidently knowing that you are here and close to us. We pray this in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.